from that point on, it became sort of a very significant personal passion of mine to make sure that the world understood that sanctions regimes improperly applied to the lowest folks on the pyramid, so to speak, can cause more death and suffering than a military campaign. And we see that time and time again. And that we need to make sure when we're developing these sanctions programs that you take a comparative risk analysis and that the benefit to humans is taken into account, as well as the impact on human rights and other factors. This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io, Quantstamp, and EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. The invasion of Ukraine has brought new awareness to the critical importance of humanitarian aid in times of crisis. As of March 4th of this year, the country had received nearly $100 million in crypto donations, according to Alex Bornyakov, Ukraine's deputy minister at the Ministry of Digital Transformation. It's important to note that part of the reason crypto has proven to be so valuable to the Ukrainian people is because so many wallet holders were set up in Ukraine prior to the invasion. In 2021, Ukraine was ranked fourth out of 157 countries in Chainalysis's Global Crypto Adoption Index, and it was ranked number one in 2020. So the current crisis is not the first time crypto has proven useful in the humanitarian context. On a previous episode of the show, we talked with Francesco Rui about efforts in Afghanistan. We've also seen the value of crypto in fragile settings around the world, from Venezuela to Uganda to Syria. Both international organizations and individuals are taking notice. Well-known institutions like the UN, Mercy Corps, and Care International have all looked into crypto's use for humanitarian purposes. And a 2021 analysis by TradingView found that countries that rank at the bottom of the Human Freedom Index or that are politically turbulent for other reasons appear in the top 10 countries for online digital currency searches. As it turns out, crypto can be revolutionary for humanitarian aid in high-risk contexts. The reason this isn't seen as axiomatic is because most well-meaning commentators don't quite understand what the core challenges in this space are today. For example, contrary to views recently expressed in the mainstream media, crypto can be a tool to prevent terrorist financing and fraud and corruption in aid rather than the reverse. But engagement with these organizations and their on-the-ground expertise is critical. Sadly, the crisis in Ukraine is not the last time the world will see atrocities committed with little of any regard for human life. We have an opportunity to create flexible response models that can be spun up locally, to create engagement models using a form of currency, namely crypto, that can be deployed quickly across borders, and to create transparency and accountability models for the use of funds sent in response to crisis situations. We also have a chance to better protect the data of those affected by crisis, rather than subject them to invasions of privacy we would never tolerate under ordinary conditions. Our guest today will help us understand where humanitarian aid organizations are on their journey in exploration of crypto, the value proposition these orgs provide for the crypto ecosystem, particularly when they are engaged at the start of the build, the need for more engagement between the two, and what aid organizations actually need. That guest is Jeremiah Centrella, a partner at Nichols Liu LLP and former general counsel at Mercy Corps. Nichols Liu is a boutique law firm dedicated to serving the needs of government contractors. The firm specializes in investigating and responding to USG investigations. 
Before we talk to Jeremiah, let's bring in my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hey there, Sheila. How are you? I'm hanging in. <laughs> it's been quite a week. We've got so much activity happening. All this stuff happening in the European Parliament. We've got the ongoing crisis situation in Ukraine. Like we say every week, right? What a week. What a week to be alive. <laughs> yeah, and Bitcoin over 48,000. So that's something. I'm in LA at the moment. NFT LA and yep, the NFT mania definitely has not died down. It is it's, it's a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz. Yeah, well, like we were talking about when we were both at South by, right? It's almost like parallel conferences sometimes run. There's a whole NFT action happening and then there's the conference, the actual conference, right? Of what was intended to be. So it must be quite something to see the apotheosis of all of that at NFTLA. I'm currently in Tahoe. It's snowing and gorgeous, but you know, it's surreal. It's surreal to be in such a peaceful place, looking at a gorgeous view and then just be aware of what's happening in the world. <laughs> I can't, can't tell a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's bring in our guests. I'm trying to make this episode not too depressing. And so I'm hoping we can have a hopeful note. And Jeremiah is certainly the person to help us with that. So Jeremiah, I'd love to turn to you and just, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background, what got you interested in this concept of humanitarian aid and crypto and, and where you first saw that connection between the two spaces. Sure. My background really been in-house on the legal side, working for an international helicopter company. And then that actually really around export controls and sort of international transactions took me to Mercy Corps. Uh, where I ended up as general counsel for a number of years. And my role at general counsel, as general counsel, and even before that at Mercy Corps, often involved dealing with very difficult issues of fraud, corruption, transparency, and how we were operating in these very high-risk environments. And for those of you who don't know Mercy Corps, I think they're often sort of at the cutting edge of operating in some of the most difficult places in the world and doing so with a very large amount of U.S. government money. So... Those challenges were just day to day. And what I noticed in the space, if I sort of took a step back, was that the entire humanitarian aid infrastructure has really struggled to make a transition from years ago when the world was pretty disconnected to the world we have now, where I like to say that transparency is not a choice, it's a reality, particularly in aid. Everything you do can end up in the public sphere, and that's a good thing. But it also means that aid organizations, even with a billion dollar budget operating in 40 of the highest risk countries, you think about that from a commercial perspective, there's just no way you can efficiently manage that and protect yourself from the huge plethora of risks that you face. Um, and fraud corruption being one of the principal ones, sexual exploitation and abuse, um, sanctions violation, terrorist financing, these are, these are actually at sort of the top five risk level for organizations that have posed existential crises for many organizations over the last five or seven years. So very focused on that. While I was at Mercy Corps, I also got really involved with the sanctions issues that go along with humanitarian aid back in 2010 with Somalia and the crisis that was really perpetrated by sanctions that led to a massive famine and hundreds of thousands of people dying because there was a complete shutoff of aid going into Somalia, given the perceived risks that some portion of that might end up in the hands of al-Shabaab. And from that point on, it became sort of a, a very significant personal passion of mine to make sure that the world understood that sanctions regimes improperly applied to the lowest folks on the pyramid, so to speak, can cause more death and suffering than a military campaign. And we see that time and time again. And that we need to make sure when we're developing these sanctions programs that you take a comparative risk analysis and that the benefit to humans is taken into account as well as the impact on human rights and other factors. 
that's been a big part of my work all the way through. And then through that, I continue to now advise clients who are operating in these high-risk environments around fraud, corruption, terrorist financing issues, what have you, working with different government agencies, treasury, whatnot. You know, seeing that, taking a step back, when I first got involved with cryptocurrency, it was a project that one of our team members brought, and it was sort of very early on in my learning journey. But actually, Mercy Corps wrote a paper in 2016 that talked about how cryptocurrency could actually disintermediate international aid because INGOs serve a trust function, just like any other financial institution does. We connect a donor with a recipient in a foreign country. But I sort of ignored the whole space for a while, but then was asked to really weigh in on the project. And in the process, I came across Katie Hahn's speeches and her debate with Paul Krugman, what have you. I honestly have to thank Katie for opening my eyes as to what this could actually mean. And then, of course, you go down the, the rabbit hole, and I became a very passionate about what this could mean for aid. And I became passionate because I know that as an aid organization, you cannot effectively manage these risks without automating very significant portions of it, that the overhead burdens are already quite large and we need to reduce those, but that's counter to what everybody expects on the transparency and accountability side. So I really started to think about this from the perspective of INGO operations and how do we effectively do cash distributions when for Mercy Corps that was becoming an enormous part of what we did. And we're seeing doing these investigations there and elsewhere, it's, it happens all over the place where you're having to collate thousands of thumbprints on sheets and you know traditional ways of doing things that became almost impossible. And you realize if somebody just made an allegation, your ability to prove exactly where that money went takes an enormous amount of resources. So we had to do something differently. And I think that was sort of the initial driver. But then we started to think about, well, all these issues I'm seeing with de-risking in all these environments, which is a very significant subject that I've worked on over the years with FATF and, and others. Aid has to use hawalas for many of these environments with lack of transparency around most aspects of what's happening there. And the government understands this. And, you know, the lack of ability to move funds in remains an existential issue for INGOs across all of these areas. But it's the same for any of these conflict zones, Yemen, Somalia, you know, Syria, perhaps Ukraine at some point. So de-risking. And then the other, and I think the most transformative potential here was really around the currency fluctuation issues. And in the INGO space, you get sort of a firsthand view of how currencies are actually working. And how currency fluctuations, collapsing currencies actually have an enormous impact on food security. All of the big food traders in most of these environments are only dealing in U.S. dollars. Anybody who has wealth stores their value in U.S. dollars. Any significant transaction in many of these places happens in U.S. dollars despite the sanctions. But if you're on the bottom of the pyramid, you're at the mercy of currencies that are collapsing. And these are places where central banks are not effectively managing currencies or not managing them at all. And it, it causes enormous impacts that people don't really think about when they're sitting in the U.S. or elsewhere. What is the role of a collapsing currency on food insecurity? So with the team, and we're lucky to have a few visionaries and a, and a great board of directors, Mercy Corps really spent a lot of time building momentum within the organization, creating an executive team focused on this, because you realize that if you're an organization, I think this is true in many studies, and you dabble in this technology, uh, you'll never see the, the benefit of the value of the level of change it requires, the level of education, 
means that you know it's very easy to just sort of take on a small project and and then say well it's not worth it but what you have to do actually is sort of start from the ground up when you're looking at this and think about how aid can work differently how your organization can work differently and make sure that you have a big enough vision that it's worth the level of effort to move people forward. So building that internal buy-in was a long, arduous process, but we got there. And I think the team at Mercy Corps got on there. The rest of the team is doing an amazing job. But this is how I got into it and why I now advise INGOs uh, around this subject. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. QuantStamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for QuantStamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. That's quantstamp.com slash careers. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. That's blockchain.ey.com. Great for that comprehensive summary there, Jeremiah. And I'm glad you, some of the things you hit upon, like they were just classic money reimagined themes, particularly Somalia itself. You shut down that remittance corridor that got me most interested in thinking at the time around, you know, how do we actually get money to these people and sort of somehow diminish this excessive burden that comes from sanctions and KYC controls and this very, very burdensome way in which people who are unbanked can't gain access to it. And it was very much around, I think, some of the awareness around using blockchain flows as a way to actually look at systemic risks rather than individuals. And, you know, some of the stuff that Katie Horn was talking about from her experiences at the DOJ, I think, drew from that. So clearly, like, it's great to see people like yourself and Katie and others, you know, seeing this for what it is as a real opportunity to break down these risks. And you, I think, powerfully just said, right, there's more harm that gets done sometimes from sanctions than from a war, which is a profound thing to say. And it just shows how broken this system is. And now, obviously, with Ukraine causing not just problems at home, but you just mentioned food security. And we keep hearing about what this huge surge in, you know, wheat and other food prices is going to do to countries that are dependent upon that. We clearly face a moment of reckoning when it comes to this. So I suppose my question to you, having, you've gone down the rabbit hole, you've gotten it there and you've obviously managed to evangelize and get a few folks at Mercy Corps to understand this. But how deep does the awareness go of the potentially positive aspect of this, this technology? Because 
the dialogue is still so fraught with stories about people running off with money laundering and all of the evasion of sanctions language that we're hearing at the moment. I think the problem is not just a lack of awareness amongst policymakers, or maybe that's deliberate, but also amongst the NGOs themselves. Is there at all an emerging awareness and an emerging kind of like, hey, we have to think about these things differently? Or are people just largely still doing the same old thing under the blind assumption that this is how you should do it? A uh, very great question. So I think quite senior levels, many, not all, but many INGOs see the potential here. You know, these are folks at board level, CEO level, who've had a lot of exposure to the space and have had a chance to take a look at it, are hearing a lot about it. What I am seeing actually is at that level, there is a push to get organizations more involved, to understand it more and to move things forward. At the other end of the spectrum, what I'm hearing from my clients is actually it's very, very interesting. It's what I would expect. At the other end of the spectrum, at the beneficiary side, at their local team member side in Afghanistan and in a whole host of different places, those folks are pushing their organizations and saying, you know, the reason why you're so worried about this is because it's not, it won't have any impact on you. So why are you, well, you know, what's the impetus to learn? But me here in this place, I want to be paid in a cryptocurrency. This is life and death for us. We know how to use it and we want to move in that direction. And I've actually heard that from three clients where that evangelist trying to get things going, but it was actually those, those folks in the field who said, we need to figure this out. So overall, I do think behind the scenes, there is quite a bit of interest. There's still quite a bit of skepticism. I'm working with all the general counsels, still part of those groups. And, you know, we're having great conversations across the board. You know, USAID actually, I spent an hour and a half with their entire legal team on a call a couple of years ago talking about this because they were interested. So what, what I see actually is there's a lot of interest, a lot going on behind the scenes, much of it at senior levels. There's sort of a gap in the middle where sometimes the bureaucracy is used to doing things the way they're used to doing it. And people are having a hard time sort of making that transition. And the other thing that's I think holding it back a little bit is everybody is still a little afraid to go out there and say, we buy into this, we believe it, and we're ready to really sort of make investments to build capacity. I think everyone's a little hesitant to do that because of the narrative around cryptocurrencies. So, you know, if you're a CEO or a CFO, you don't want to be seen as sort of an advocate for this stuff yet. But I'm seeing that change and I'm seeing the amount of money that's going to those organizations that are willing to work on it the right way, really having a big influence on organizations. So I would frame it as right now what we have is maybe three problems for NGOs who are looking to get into the space. The first is awareness, education, capacity building. You have a lot of folks in these organizations who are actually really into this at the field level, different levels, connecting those people within an organization but educating the rest of the team that needs to come along. When you implement one of these projects, you've got to have finance, you've got to have you know, the entire bureaucracy. Someone in there has to be involved in order to manage it from their perspective. Um, increasing levels of education and awareness is critical, and I sure hope that we see MIT and some of these others offer scholarships or free executive education for nonprofit leaders and INGOs. So I'm going to push for that in the coming years because that's breaking down those barriers is huge. The second issue is that nonprofits have a very, very limited budget for taking on innovative new projects that don't have funding, right? Most actually have almost nothing they can spend on innovative projects like a pilot using cryptocurrency and building the capacity around that. 
And if they do, it's competing with every other aspect of what they're doing and the urgency of now takes control. So organizations need flexible funding to be able to conduct pilots, to work on this with partners. That's the ubiquitous request from nonprofits. But in this case, I think mm-hmm. it's, it can have a real leveraged impact. Yeah. So, you know, Jeremiah, on all three of those points, when I was still at the World Economic Forum last November, our Digital Currency Governance Consortium published a whole paper on blockchain-based digital currencies and cross-border aid and thinking about how this technology could actually help with some of the problems that you've laid out and, and take the frame that you so effectively laid out here. And we also walked through a number of pilots that are actually in production in many cases that are being looked at to kind of see how some of the inefficiencies and other issues can be addressed. But of course, grounding all of this in humanitarian principles, you know, just making sure that the whole purpose of humanitarian action is to protect life and health, right, in a respectful manner, to treat human beings equally, and to ensure that dignity is preserved as part of the process, also to be neutral, right, in in some ways, which I think is extraordinarily challenging when you talk about things like sanctions that you mentioned and gave such a good overview of. It's really hard to engage in effective, neutral humanitarian aid within a sanctions regime because your ability to engage with people isn't necessarily targeted. And what is so powerful about the blockchain is that you actually can create a much more pinpoint sanctions opportunity, if you will, that doesn't sweep in a whole bunch of people that really need access to this technology and to currencies, whatever it might be, uh, exchanges of value in order to just live. And so I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that framing and just the complexity around engaging in humanitarian uh, activities within a sanctions regime. Right. It can be enormously difficult. I think when we talk about cryptocurrency, and this goes back to what I said earlier, when we're doing risk analysis, when FATF is or the U.S. Treasury or what have you, they really need to apply, all policymakers need to apply a comparative risk analysis. What's the current state of the world versus what it could be? And if we can make a step change improvement, that's great. What I am very concerned about right now when it comes to this space is like all new technology. This happens at INGOs too. They just look at the risks of this and they don't compare it to what they're doing now. Right now in, the, in a sanctions environment, one of these high-risk environments, you know, it is difficult to deliver. It happens. It happens at broad scale with a tremendous amount of cash involved. You know, if you're talking about using koalas and others, there's not a lot of transparency in some aspects of how that works. I think aid organizations do everything they can to deal with that. But this would be a step change improvement, particularly if you're talking about cash distribution programs and you're using chain analysis reactor programs to actually identify the red flags, what have you. Really massive improvements to the level of efficiency that you could have with large-scale cash distribution programs and the ability to track any significant fraud and corruption or sanctions violations is really massively improved. You know, you mentioned, Jeremiah, at some point in your previous comments that Hawala is used extensively by NGOs, as you have no choice. First of all, do you mind just for our viewers explaining what Hawala is as a, as a system for money transfer, why NGOs are sort of compelled to use it and, and how it works? How do they actually go about tapping into those longstanding networks that move money around the world? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Hawala... I use that term pejoratively. There's many different structures for how they work in different contexts, different countries, what have you. Essentially, informal money transfer networks, you know, traditional in Islamic finance in some countries. But at the core of a wallet, it's a trust network that involves different business players 
And if, let's say, you're in Syria, you have the ability to take funds out of that Huala in Syrian currencies, and you can put money into that Huala in Dubai or a number of other countries where it may be registered in the UK at some points, who's registering Huala networks, what have you. You know, so basically, it's a trading network. On one side, they're taking in Syrian pounds for folks who are importing into the country, and then they're paying out in dollars for their obligations. The dollars are coming in from aid organizations going the other direction. There's many, many different structures. They're set up in a whole host of different places. And some places they're regulated and some places they're not. In different environments, they've been the only option to move money in as, as de-risking is really caught and hold. And this is known to Fadov and others. And there's a tremendous amount of work on how we can deal with the de-risking problem. For those of you who don't know, what that means is even though transactions are allowed by sanctions because it's a high-risk environment, no commercial bank will facilitate the transaction or send money into that context. I don't think it's a perfect analogy, but I'll be slightly controversial in saying that in some ways, you know, it's like the financial system redlining a huge swath of the population. The poorest people who need it the most have been cut off from the system because they do not provide enough profit to the banks to engage in the compliance that's necessary. And that's, that's just an enormous tragedy. Think of, you know, it's the wealthiest folks who are doing the most amount of money laundering and what have you, and they've got many options to pull it off with shell companies and otherwise. So we just cut off the poorest people because they have no voice and they don't provide any money. This is just a tragedy on a global scale. As we move down this path with cryptocurrencies, it's certainly my goal and many others to make sure if we're going to create this new financial world, that we don't replicate that problem. It's just crucial. Yeah. So Jeremiah, you're certainly not controversial within the Money Reimagined universe. Uh, we've spent several episodes just talking about this exact problem, de-risking the consequences, uh, analogizing it to your redlining. You know, that's familiar to American listeners who understand that example, but thinking about that at scale and the consequences of it, you're right. It is actually, it is absolutely tragic. And so you've mentioned, and you and I have spoken about just the need for engagement uh, across these sectors. So to have aid organizations or others, uh, other INGOs, just working more closely within the crypto ecosystem or with protocol developers and others. And I wonder if there are examples that you can point to of where this is, is going well, or maybe ways in which this doesn't work. And I'll just start by saying, you know, generally speaking, what I try to hammer home as often as I can is that you have to be thinking of use cases when you begin a build and you have to start from the very beginning with engaging folks who actually understand the context, not bringing them in later when your project's in flight and trying to make adjustments because that just doesn't work and that's a very poor model for a build. Uh, so with that predicate, I'm curious if you have examples to speak to about where this might be effective. Yes, I do actually. And maybe I'll, I'll say a couple words about sort of a broader framing for it, which is you hear a tremendous amount in the crypto sphere about the potential positives in these high-risk environments in developing countries, what have you. It's leapfrog technology for these places that could have a massive impact. It is incredibly important that if it's going to gain hold, that we don't leave these places farther behind. That's first and foremost. And for every INGO, they should be thinking about that. You know, what happens if they're the last to really catch on? In that context, uh, what's readily apparent to most INGO folks is there are many folks looking at this who don't understand how to actually make it work in these places or the challenges or, you know, the cultural aspects, what have you. And not every INGO does either, I should say. There's, there should be a level of humility on both sides, absolutely. But INGOs are thinking about the risks that get created 
for the people you're trying to serve. They've spent a tremendous amount of time and effort trying to figure out how a cash distribution program, for example, doesn't increase food prices and hurt the population more than doing nothing, looking at markets. There's just a a lot of complexity around how you make something work. And good INGOs are really focused on, especially the market-focused ones. There's a real synergy, I think, between the two in that you can have a profit motive if you're a, you know, a startup looking at one of these solutions. But if you partner with an INGO, maybe they can help you with local partners and local context, make sure that your solution actually works for the poorest of the poor so you're not cutting people out. I've seen some great examples of that. Mercy Corps is doing a fantastic job of that, partnering across the board, co-building, making investments uh, to make sure that their money can influence these protocols to have real impact going forward. And they're taking the model of facilitating and co-building across most of what they're doing, which I think is really great. A model I'm a little less enamored with, but it'll be exciting to see what happens as INGOs thinking they can go out and build their own protocols. You know, we haven't seen that succeed at tech, I think, in a significant way. And I, I think there's just major limitations there. So Finding the synergies between the two, you both have the same objective and making it work. On the crypto side, I think where I have some concerns around some of the big protocol players is where they view INGOs as a method to increase their users, to spread their gospel, to sort of spread their products. I don't think it will have backlash in the humanitarian community. It already does. Ultimately, in the long run, there'll be real negative impacts for that. Loss of credibility, loss of trust for the organizations, potentially. And you should always be designing a solution with the needs of the people in mind, not coming with a solution to force on them. So for those protocols that are providing money and assistance and what have you, I would encourage them to be flexible, to work with INGOs, allow them to find the solution that works best for the constituency that they have, and don't force them to use your your services. When you say that you would encourage these chains or these protocols to do this or to do that, the degree to which that protocol is decentralized is going to make that more or less of a moot point. There are lots of supposedly decentralized, tokenized communities out there who have a leadership that are like promoting uh, these you know, humanitarian solutions and they're essentially you know, the CIO talking. And you're right, that I can see the conflict there, but the, the broader and the more open the participation, the less that could ever be the case. So it's just an inter- interesting observation. And so one of the reasons why I think you know, these open models can be good. But the other part of it that I think I'd like you to drill down into a little bit, we've alluded to it in some of this discussion already, is the privacy question for these users. Again, a topic we've dealt with a lot on Money Reimagined. And, you know, I think some people tend to think of the poor as just saying, you know what, privacy is the devil, you know, less, lesser evil than, say, just getting them the money and the help. And yet that just opens up all sorts of opportunities for exploitation. And so I'm just wondering, you know, given that so much aid you know, has been developed around a number of ID systems, I'm thinking about refugees in particular and the use of biometrics and so forth to move money. What's the current thinking within the community, NGO community, about how you deal with these privacy issues and how much is there an interest in, say, some of the more advanced cryptographic solutions to that, zero-knowledge proofs and so forth, that might allow us to have good auditability of the movement of funds, but not actually you know, require PII to be included in this way? The first thing I'd say on the privacy question is, again, comparative risk analysis. 
what are NGOs doing now around protecting the, the privacy of the data of their beneficiaries when they have beneficiary lists and sitting in the country that might have hostile actors, what have you. So I know every organization is really focused on this, but it is a very significant issue and there's been some significant downfalls in the past. So right now we don't have a, I don't think a great system. And if we did as INGOs, you would be spending way too much money for them to do that. So as we think about this future, organizations are really focused on the issues around privacy with blockchains, particularly if you're operating in a high-risk environment. What I'd say is if, you know, if you're working with a player in Afghanistan or one of these places that's following the travel rule, whatnot, you know, you got to be thinking about the risks. Once that entity has, has the wallet information connected with an ID of someone outside the country, there's potential that hostile actors in those places can figure out everybody who's received money from that organization and target them based on that. There's real risks around current blockchains that I think are significant just in sort of the practicalities. And then if we think about what everybody's trying to do on IDs, I'm a little concerned if uh, humanitarian aid organizations are trying to create identities, unless they have a tremendous amount of investment behind it. I think that it's a little bit fraught and private sector may actually be better capable of doing that, certainly public sector as well. But when you talk about zero knowledge proofs, there is actually a lot of interest in zero knowledge proof identities in the INGO space. And I have a number of clients who are making that sort of one of their focus areas. And the question is, you know, how do they effectively partner with those zero knowledge proof identity solutions to help guide that process? And WorldCoin is an interesting example. I will say that I think they probably could have benefited with a few INGO partners. I'm not sure if they did. But I know there are many others that are looking at this and hoping to really leverage that technology for, for some of these issues. Jeremiah, I mean, it's just a fascinating roundup of, of the concept, I think, high level is that there are different issues in the humanitarian space. There are different issues when working with vulnerable populations and there are when working with mainstreamed populations, let's say, who already have access to legacy financial systems, who are looking for maybe just an efficiency use case. Uh, but those who are not part of these systems, those who have been cut out of these systems uh, deliberately, whether that's because of a certain approach to risk-taking, to de-risking, or whether that's maliciously or deliberate intent uh, to exclude them. It doesn't matter on some level. The reality is access is not present. And so when I see things like this current proposal up in the EP and the Econ Committee looking at removing the minimum exception under 1K to the travel rule, you know, it's truly problematic because when you think about small dollar transactions, a lot of the times you're talking about folks who are exactly the communities that you've been addressing and we've been talking about during this episode. And the idea that we would put more barriers in the way of people who already have huge systemic barriers to exchanging value, particularly in a cross-border context, and particularly in times of crisis, is to me just so incredibly short-sighted and problematic. And so really appreciate your walking us through a lot of these considerations. I think the call to action here for everyone really is to say, and something we've talked about on the show quite a bit, if we aren't building for these kinds of use cases, if we aren't thinking about the fact that there will be a time when any of us could be subject to humanitarian crisis. So if we're not thinking with that kind of framing, what are we doing? We're really just replicating, I think, the system that exists today and saying that the 85% whatever of folks were able to engage or cling in some way to being underbanked, but at least within the system is good enough. And I just think that is, to the words you used previously, I think that is an absolute tragedy. So I want to thank you very much for joining us today, Jeremiah Centrella. Uh, thank you so much from Nichols Lou. Thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremiah. My co-host, Michael Casey, as always, such a joy uh, to be on with you. 
And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do and join us next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Jeremiah Centrella. The show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget the industry's most influential event that's happening this June 9th through the 12th in Austin, Texas, Consensus 2022. If you're looking to immerse yourself in the fast-moving world of crypto, Web3, and NFTs, this is the festival experience for you. Use code MONEYREIMAGIN15 to get 15% off your GA and Pro Pass at coindesk.com forward slash consensus 2022. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>